Hang on. Hang on. Halt. Welcome to This Might Be a Podcast, the song-by-song podcast about the greatest band of all time, They Might Be Giants. This is a big one, big song, big guest, uh, in a big Mary Poppins house, it's Daryl Till is here to talk about (laughs) returning, to talk about The Statue Got Me High. You might have heard it, it's on Apollo 18. The statue got me high, the statue got me high, the monument of granite Santa beaming to my eye. The statue made me die, the statue made me die, it took my hand, it killed me, and it turned me to the sky. The stone it called to me. Hey, Daryl. Hey, Greg. How's it going? Good. It's always nice and relaxing to talk to people I talk to all the time. Anyway, it's even though you haven't done an episode since, um, I guess the accordion episode would have been slightly more recent than the Someone Keeps Moving My Chair episode. Yeah, that was like right at the beginning of the pandemic, wasn't it? The accordion the, episode. Sure was. Yeah. <laughs> everyone was those, very those happy to be talking. <laughs> yeah, everyone was very happy to be talking about something fun and not shitty. Uh, yeah, that, that was a good time. Um, yeah, and the your previous solo episode, Someone Keeps Moving My Chair, for quite a while retained the title as the longest episode and yeah. that one wasn't even a charting single. So no, I can't. Here we are. <laughs> that one, I mean, even before we tacked, because we ended up tacking on like three more covers onto that section because the TMBS, they might be shitposting, uh, flood compilation came out between us recording the main portion and releasing it. So we were like, sure, let's tack more on there. It was already over two hours, I believe, and then yeah, yeah. it was about that time. And uh, but you, you got my backstory as well, which we don't need to do this time, do we? Exactly right, um, and that's good because leave plenty of time for the million other things that we have to talk about with this one. I mean, we're get. I, I know no one else would care, but while I was waiting for you to hop on, I uh, was trying to figure out who the uh, skateboarders are that are the astronauts in the video. I thought uh, the skateboarders <laughs> would really interest you. Because how? Yeah. Oh, how old would you've been when in, in 1992? In 92, I would have been 11, and I was already skateboarding then because I had a cooler, older cousin uh, who had um, 
mini ramp a half pipe in his backyard in pittsburgh but i had skate videos like my cousin was telling me all the vhs tapes all the cool escape videos to buy so i had all these videos from 89 90 91 and in the video you can two times you can see one of the guy's faces uh and i was trying to pin it down because but i mean there's a million i mean he, he appears to be uh, an asian american fella and that's narrows it down slightly but um for being in la i mean there's a million skaters there and while he pulls off i mean at one point one of them does an indie air which is where you grab front side on the board as you're flying up uh so i mean it's someone who had to have some sort of skills uh they also do like a little bit of a wall ride up in that tunnel like they had to have hired these guys based on skateboarding ability because faking the saxophone that's easy playing a snare drum roll you know they just had to learn a couple rolls I think they probably picked guys that were that I mean they didn't have to be pros cuz it was it was filmed in LA wasn't it it, it was filmed in yeah. LA but you'd imagine the sepulvated dam mm-hmm. yeah yeah which was um a, a, is a really uh, popular site for filming sci-fi yeah and music videos apparently BTS did a video there in the, in recent years <laughs> oh so. you know what? My, my my daughter's just suddenly started a BTS phase oh boy yeah <laughs> yeah but uh there's a really really uh, probably the best skaters from around that area uh, area in that time frame that come to mind Asian American guys Daywon Song was a really cool guy he was more based in San Diego I believe but I mean so that's you know a few hours away and then um, Christian Hasoy, he was more of a vert skater. But if he's doing an indie area, he'll be a vert skater. I don't know. This is something that probably very few people listening to this would care about. But I, I didn't think about it until I was watching the the newest, the highest quality upload that that TMG, you know put up there not that long ago. They started re-uploading all those videos mm-hmm. in higher quality. And at the one point, yeah, they're sitting in like, the astronauts are sitting in like director's chairs, like director style chairs. And you can see the one guy's face. I'm like, Oh, and then a little later he lifts one of them. It's the same guy. It appears lifts, uh, the, the mask and the, and the astronaut, hel- uh, helmet. And you can see him again. I'm like, Oh shit. Who is that? Well, the two films that I know that were filmed there. Well, at least had scenes there. There was, um, Gattaca, uh, is, has mm. a scene or two that's filmed there, which is a pretty good movie, but, um, the thing that really uh, impressed me was my one of my favorite films of all time. You may or may not have heard of it. It's called The Adventures of Bukaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. It's a real, no. <laughs> it's a real cult <laughs> film. Uh, it's got what Peter the hell Mal- is that title? Say that title again. That's a long one. Well, is, the is there a colon version. in there somewhere? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the short <laughs> version is Bukaroo Banzai, but the full title of the film is The Adventures of Bukaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Amazing film. <laughs> it's got okay. Peter Weller, uh, John Lithgow, um, oh. Barkin, um, huh. uh, absolutely stellar cast um, of people. Who else is in it? Um, uh, Jeff Goldblum is in it. Um, oh, wow. Uh, uh, this, I'm so bad with actors' names. Uh, Christopher Lloyd is in it. Damn. And, um, and, and yeah, I, I, w- I was really, really into this film when I saw it in the 80s. It came out about a year before uh, Back to the Future, but it was one of those films that didn't do very well. But in, in that golden age of VHS, um, I remember going into the video shop and seeing it you know, for rental and, and watching it. And um, it, w- w- later on, when they brought out a special edition DVD, Mm-hmm. There's um, Jamie Lee Curtis ended up on the cutting room floor 
that's how amazing the cast was because they, there's like deleted scenes like Jamie Lee Curtis is in it <laughs> as wow. well. But she was, Damn. yeah, she didn't make the film. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's an impressive film. But um, this is the weird thing. The, the Seppel David Dam uh, scene is actually the end credits, the end credits role. And there's this like um, instrumental musical scene where the credits roll and the whole cast, even the ones that have died, sort of walk <laughs> in this sort of synchronized walk it's a little bit sort of theatrical in the way that you know it's uh-huh. everybody you know like at the end of a theater huh. production when everyone comes back on and bows even people who yeah yeah. yeah yeah and um well the, the music is really cool and um yeah yeah it's, it's just uh it was just a weird thing when i discovered that they were filmed in the same place and yet it was so obvious like the minute I heard it. It was like, yes, of course it is. I've watched both of these things so many times and I can't believe I didn't make the connection. Yeah. I also believe that the, so I, for the longest time kind of gave up video games almost entirely. Like I'd an N64 and like when I started college, like 99 was the last system I bought. And, um, but I later got a hold, not that long ago, got hold of a PlayStation 3. And in Grand Theft Auto V, like one of the most popular video games of all time, uh, I believe, because it's it's not called Los Angeles, but it's essentially Los Angeles. And like you can look up, like there's a wiki for it, of course, which I would go to when I was trying to figure shit out um, that I couldn't beat. Like the, is it the courthouse or like the city hall or whatever is like exactly like exact replica. And there is a huge basin uh, that you can drive through. And I'm not sure it's supposed to be that dam or like some other sort of, you know, always dried out, you know, the <laughs> all their droughts and everything. Just a dry uh, water basin that you can drive through. Uh, might not be that dam, but uh, not positive. I don't know if it was your intention to talk about the video first. We kind of just segued into it, didn't we? But um, you know, I mean, we got so much to talk about. It. I'm fine jumping right in. I mean, this. I mean, a song big enough to have a video back in the Electra days. You know, they were pushing it Absolutely. hard, and it it is definitely a, a fan favorite. It's one of their yeah. highest charting song. I mean, it's the highest charting song off of Apollo. Um, and so let's see. I'm, the, the other thing I was just going to say about the video, um, if you've watched, because I could not not mention this, if you've watched Derek from Brooklyn with the audio commentary, Flans mentions that the video got them into trouble in Britain. Yeah. Um, because there's <laughs> there's some fire graphics in it. Oh, and, no. Uh, and he said, <laughs> I want to clear this up, actually, because what Flans actually says okay. in the DVD commentary you know, Flans is joking around and sort of oversimplifying it, but I, I found a few people have taken him literally uh, because he says that in Britain you're not allowed to show fire on television or, <laughs> or ninjas or, <laughs> or say the word ninja. Yeah. And <laughs> people have actually said this to me, you know, hey, Daryl, uh, is it true you can't say ninja in uh, in England? Um, so, yeah, I just want to clear this up. It was. It wasn't that you can't say those things in in Britain. It was at the time in the 90s, there was uh, very, very strict broadcasting rules uh, during the hours when children can watch. And there probably still are. Right. But one of those things was, yeah, you you can't show fire, setting fire to things in a music video because that would just make kids go and set fire to things. Uh, But the thing thing about ninjas was there's obviously no ninjas in the statue. Um, The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in the UK, uh-huh. were rebranded as the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. 
<laughs> and that that's exactly what he's referring to because they said no, no, no we, we can't we can't have ninjas kids wanting to be ninjas and um <laughs> the other thing that i really remember from that time is one of the one of the video games that featured um nunchucks i think mm-hmm. it was one of the tekken games uh came out in ninja the, gaiden uh, maybe I mean, yeah, hmm. possibly possibly from that but that era anyway early 90s and they said no 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 you, you can't have nunchucks because that is a ninja weapon so they basically <laughs> the, the coders they took the chain off and this character was just fighting with two tiny sticks <laughs> <laughs> in the english version of this game the worst so, possible thing <laughs> Yeah. Oh no! Oh, He's man. got two tiny sticks. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there is some truth to what Flansberg said, but it's, it's not quite so literal. And um, but it is absolutely true. I first saw the video to this on a, a TV show called The Chart Show, ITV Chart Show, mm. which was um, popular at the time. And it was um, actually a really cool show because it didn't have presenters. It was like wall to wall music. And, nice. uh, and any kind of present pre- presentation or whatever was done as like sort of text graphic overlays on the screen. And um, mm. if you actually go to my YouTube channel, Astral Beat, I've actually uploaded the tiny segment of the video that is different and doesn't have the flame graphics. They have uh-huh. some other kind of graphics over the top of it. Um, and that's the version that I knew. So when I actually finally got direct from Brooklyn, that was the first time I ever saw the fire graphics, which... Mm. I mean, I was I was horrified. I went out and burnt down a building. You are linked from the wiki. Did you know that? No way. Yep. At the very bottom of the set, you got me high wiki page. It has oh, uh, yeah. videos. Watch on Vimeo. Watch on YouTube. Uh, oh, yeah. Best quality video. And then clip showing the UK edited scene. And it links to your video that you just mentioned. Brilliant. Well, people can, <laughs> people can watch that in their own time because a video clip makes awful podcast radio, doesn't it? We'll just play the audio, and it's like, well, that's just the song. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, we can be circling back around to the video, but we should just start out by saying, you know, this song is just so massive for fans. And at the time, you know, later we'll talk about them playing it on The Tonight Show. Uh, Got some cool stuff to tell people about that. Um, But uh, Apollo, you know, coming off of Flood... You know, uh, which I'm not sure exactly when that went platinum. It's early on to go platinum. Uh, Apollo debuted on the Billboard charts. Uh, the Billboard 200, our American chart. I'm not sure if we can, we can probably figure out how they chart in the UK. Um, it got to 92. It, it got to 92. 92 which it okay, so it got played on the radio. But that's, that's so, so yeah. 99. Yeah, it charted at 99 in the US. Uh, week of April 11th, 1992. So six weeks on the chart, uh, peaked at 99. Um, but for a band like they might be giants, I mean, they're so weird. Like, you know, if I was going to compare them to like, well, like the Pixies are kind of comparable in that also on Electra during that time, also mm. weird. So like a major label band, but Electra was like for the weirder or like harder rocking bands. Um, 99 isn't bad. I mean, especially for that time, cause it was very competitive in that era. Oh, absolutely. And you know, one of the, re- the reason that I picked this song to talk about is because it really ha- feels very personal to me. But I realize it, it's not probably unique to me. I think a lot of fans have this. Because it was a single and because it came out before Apollo and because I am a floody, uh, I, I became a fan <laughs> through Flood. 
<laughs> I, I proudly wear that badge now. I think I mentioned in the last podcast how, you know, when I first sort of found the, uh, you know, the, the online fandom, floody was like this pejorative term. You know, it's like, oh, he's a floody. But like now people are like, wow, you, you were a floody? You were, you were way back then? Um, so, yeah, um, <laughs> if you became a fan through Flood, which I did, and then you discovered their back catalogue, you sort of worked backwards and found Lincoln and the B-sides and, and you know, the Pink album. This was the first thing that I actually looked forward to. This was the first They Might Be Giants release that I ever anticipated, uh-huh. that I, right. I got excited about because there was no internet, but there was the fan newsletter that uh, teased a few titles. The Statue Got Be High was one of them. And, um, you know, and we got a little... Uh, postcard through the door from the fan club saying that there was going to be a mini tour and and announcing the single The Statue Got Me High. So it was so exciting. I had this title. It's going to be a great song already. The title's awesome. Uh, And I look forward to it. And I don't think I've ever really had that excitement the same since then because um, John Henry came out in England without a single, the, the EP sort of came after. Oh, um, uh-huh, and right. they've, they've not really done the single thing since. And then of course the music industry collapsed and <laughs> you know, everything changed. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, they'll so still really call special. it a single, but like as far as a physical single, I mean, yeah, the, the, yeah. The nineties, I mean, by the time we got to the two thousands and Napster and everything else, uh, that yeah really shifted the way how uh, just music is released and promoted, but it, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was but yeah, Electra. By the time they got to John Henry, and then especially Factory Showroom, they're like, well, well, you know, let's get you guys on some late show, but we're not gonna, you know, a, John Henry gets a snail shell video, and that's it, and then Factory Showroom gets no videos. How did they not film a video for Till My Head Falls Off? I mean, oh, for Christ's sake, can you imagine? Know. You know. The, um the other thing that I was going to say about the chart position was that for fans of bands back then, you know, getting a band into the charts was really important. It was like, oh, the band I love, I mm-hmm. hope they get in the charts. Like some people might think, oh, no, I, I'm glad they might be giants are kind of cult because if they were massive, then I'd be seeing them in stadiums and paying a hundred pounds a ticket and uh, to get to right. see them like the size of an ant. but um, So there is something great yeah. about TMG having a, a sort of a small but loyal following. But at the time, it was like it was like cheering your favourite sports team on. You wanted your bands to get in the charts. You wanted them to get mm-hmm. played on the radio so you could jump up and down every time they came on the radio. And you wanted to see mm-hmm. them in the UK. You wanted to see them on top of the pops. That was the ultimate thing. If they get in the yeah. charts, they're going to be on top of the pops and we're going to see them on TV. Um, so I, I, w- I was really excited about the possibility of that happening again. Um, and I was just going to say that the day of release, because I'd just seen my very first TMBG concert like two nights before the record came out. The day of release, mm-hmm. I'd already ordered it, pre-ordered it from HMV. Do you have HMV in the States? The, uh, it's a record, it's no. a big, it was a big record chain. It's still around, but... No, no. You, you know... Um, it shares a name with a record label, His Master's Voice. You know, the dog listening to the gramophone. Oh, yeah. It's uh, RCA. Ah, right. Okay. In in yeah. the UK, that was His Master's Voice. And Linnell, of sings about that dog and the gramophone in yep. this microphone. or No, in microphone. And um, yep. so HMV was this music store. So I'd pre-ordered it from there. I, I got the bus into town in the morning because I was 16. 
uh, I wouldn't get to drive for another three months. And and I was <laughs> I, I was expecting it to be like a, a queue out the door <laughs> for the new They Might Be Giant single, you know. But, um, you know, I got there and it was like nine o'clock and the doors were open and there was nobody there. And I walked into an empty store and I said, have you got the single? And I this is the truth. I pre-ordered <laughs> I pre-ordered it on CD because I just got a CD player, but I also pre-ordered it on cassette um, because <laughs> I was going home on the bus. It would take me like an hour and I, I couldn't bear the thought of waiting an hour to hear it on CD. And I had my Walkman with me. So I, I got it on oh, cassette <laughs> and CD as I pre-ordered it. And as, as the guy's running it through the till and it's first thing, so he's not even got his float ready and, um, there's a, a guy stacking the shelves next to me with the week's new releases and he puts the vinyl up and I, I, I only got a few vinyls. I bought my earliest material on vinyl and then quickly moved to CD because it was that mm-hmm. period. Um, yeah. But he just put the statue got me high 12 inch vinyl up on the side and it, the artwork looks so beautiful. And I just said, I'll take that as well. So I actually bought three. So you know, getting to ninety, getting to ninety-two in the charts is possibly Man. my doing. It probably should have only got to ninety, ninety-three. <laughs> Yeah, if everyone bought three copies, yeah, <laughs> man, that's amazing. So the vinyl, I believe, and I talked about this on the art episode. We talked about the statue got me high EP, which I just got on uh, CD. You know, the CD single, uh, I just got my own physical copy. On vinyl, I'm assuming, is it, I'm trying to remember, was it the same cover with the uh, yeah. the astronauts driving the uh, Land Rover? Might have been it's different the, coloring. Exactly. I remember, yeah. It's just massive. Yeah. And it's got the same, It's you know, the CD single had uh, just two tracks. Sorry, the, the cassette single had two tracks on it, but the 12-inch had um, the four tracks, I'm Deaf, four. And, yeah. which just grabs how you're feeling, which were the first time I'd heard those songs. Yeah, very, I guess at the time that would have been more exciting because I bought it pretty much just like to... And it's very cool to look at, but as far as all the EPs that I've been rounding up physical copies of, it 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 doesn't have anything that's not streaming, right? Because like I got, you know, Why Does the Sunshine EP, and that has like Jessica and Whirlpool, yeah. uh, and I got... Um, which one's Welcome to the Jungle on? I don't know that if I got that yet. Is that is... an iPad or am I? Uh, I, th- it's either on um, the guitar or iPalindromai. I'm sure there's a place online I could figure that out. Uh- <laughs> that was th- that song. Welcome to the Jungle was the first dialer song I ever heard. Oh yeah, I think you told me that. Did, did yeah. you like uh, uh, the Skeletones version of it? <laughs> Me, I, being I Kai, loved it. myself, I and it, our man. wives. <laughs> I loved it, man. It was brilliant. I can't remember if we've talked about, you know, I mean, all the UK bands and Scottish bands, especially that I love. I think we've mentioned, we've talked about Jesus and Mary Chain in brief, but uh, I, mean, I can't remember if you were a fan of that noisy of UK stuff. I mean, it's definitely pulling influences from mid 80s, uh, you know, noisy, early shoegaze stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll admit, I will freely admit that TMBG were kind of my endpoint to music. I mean, I, I always loved music, but I didn't really have any bands that I was particularly into. Um, you know, my, my friends would play stuff and I'd go, oh, I like that song and I like that song. And I'd, I'd copy songs off people and make mixtapes. But so mm-hmm. I was I was really into music and I was looking for something to really, really get into. And TMBG was it. So, um, but TMBG's sphere like of influence and uh you know is so broad and, and their their styles are so broad that over time 
I kind of made my peace with a lot of styles of music that I perhaps didn't like, you know, originally. Um, and I, with punk music, I, I really like punk bands that grow up. You know, I think I said this to you, like, uh-huh. I, I find I find stuff like the Ramones a little bit hard to listen to. I kind of respect it, but I, I find it a little bit hard to listen to. But when bands, punk bands sort of matured and, you know, mm-hmm. learned to play a few more than three chords and then, you know... <laughs> Yeah, I, I I actually like that. Some people say, "Oh, once punks grow up, then it's not interesting anymore." But no, I find like some of the most um, interesting music is sort of aging punk. Oh, <laughs> I, sure, I, I sure. Might be wrong. Um, I don't I know really why, get, why. I don't know why they came to mind first. But are you a fan of the Jam? Uh, you see, no, not particularly. No? I've, I've not, okay because they started out in that kind of a punkier version of like early who you know like that mod the mod version of the who um but then they i mean they did a lot of growing up in the 80s like their album setting suns is uh really really good i'm trying to think of one uh i mean focused on the uk and stuff i mean sex pistols you know they imploded too quickly to grow up and they probably wouldn't have grown up anyway uh i mean i guess Public Image, Image Limited was yeah. kind of the Sex Pistols growing up. Are, well, are you a yeah. fan of them? They're <laughs> Actually, very artsy. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do. I love Public Image Limited. Yeah, uh, that was exactly the kind of thing I'm thinking of. Really, you know, um, because it's got the punk sensibilities about it, but there, there's, mm-hmm. there was more to it, more substance. Yeah, it's bit, got the attitude, but but yeah, oh yeah, yeah very weird. Um, but th- back to uh, statue. You know, we were talking about the album charting uh, yeah. ninety nine. Uh, the song, okay, so that well, the three singles, statue was the only one to chart, but I palindrome mm. I, and you know, and that had its own EP as well as the guitar, and that had its own EP. So the singles, I mean, whether you call them it's a CD single or an EP or whatever. Um, I guess, I mean, I'd call it more of a single if it was like the cassette you said where it has like two songs. You know, there's the A side, there's the single, and then a B side, kind of like they used to do with 45s, you know, with records. Um, but then it becomes more of an EP if you tack on more than, you know, two. But the whatever, rules are probably different. In, yeah, it, the rules are probably different in the US to the UK. But I remember at that time of physical media that there was a certain number of tracks on a CD. And once you hit that, it was an EP and it wasn't eligible for the charts in the same way that a single was and one of the Hmm. things that was really popular at the time although tmbg never did it was to release two singles like two versions of it so that fans would buy two copies um so you'd get Mm -hmm. like uh version one would have like a different set of b-sides to version two um and but both would be limited to four tracks so that would keep it right like under the the threshold of being uh, oh, so do you think so? It had to have five tracks to be an EP I, over I, there. I, I get because the to me, four is about right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Like outdoor valor, our our first EP was six. Our second one was only four, uh, and I was trying to get it crammed onto vinyl, like a seven inch. You could do. It, we didn't end up pressing it because the money just didn't make sense. But I was like, oh, if we have it, if it's a thirty-three and a third RPM seven inch, you can fit you know like eight minutes of music on a side the quality degrades but like i'm like oh we're gonna put out a record and then i start pricing it out i'm like nah, we're not putting out a record <laughs> it might it, it might even have been minutes of music because the istanbul uh single over here i mean i, I have the cd ep and i think that's the only thing that existed uh which is five I tracks including believe so yeah i just got that as well 
posted a proud picture of it on miscellaneous tea that and the spine surfs alone just trying to round up all these other you know as if firmly still a cd fan i mean i'd gladly take vinyl versions of anything but uh and i do have some um like uh both pink and and Lincoln and Flood I own on multiple formats. I, I never went and bought three formats of, of any of their things all at the same time. <laughs> it was the like one and only did, time. Yeah. <laughs> it was the one yeah. and only time. I mean, I have, I have Lincoln. You're so excited. I was just, it was just that a moment of madness in HMV on May the 10th, 1992 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, they had these three, the three singles. Statue got me high. Uh, spent eight weeks on Billboard Modern Rock tracks, so not the pop chart, but rock is yeah, that's all we care about. So eight weeks, uh, peaking at twenty four, which is pretty good. Let's see, what was uh, I mean, Birdhouse? How high did that get? On? So flood, flood peaked as an album at seventy five. Um, so, I mean, you know, Apollo getting up to 99. I mean, I, who knows if the people at Electro were like, oh, it's such a disappointment. You were supposed to surpass Flood. Uh, you know, they're always hoping for more. But um, it peaked at 14 on the album chart in the UK. Uh, let's see. I like the wiki also notes. Despite being their most popular, it was given a harsh two out of five stars by Rolling Stone upon its release. I think I went and read that. That's pretty hilarious. Yeah. Hilarious. Um, where's Birdhouse? Okay. Oh, Birdhouse became the group's biggest hit in the U.S., spending 11 weeks on Billboard Modern Rock, eventually peaking at number three. Okay, so that peaked at number three. So, um, yeah, so Statue getting up as high as it did is was pretty, you know, what did I say, 11? Um, oh, 24. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a big hit, you know, and getting to play The Tonight Show is, uh, you know, got to be a pretty decent hit to play that. Um, yeah, well. No top uh, of the pops, though. N- no. Not that time. Bottom of the bottom of the pops. <laughs> <laughs> if only. But but they did. Wait, did they ever come to the UK on uh, Apollo's uh, promotional run? They went to Japan and did the yeah. US. Yeah, they did um, okay. a, a mini tour to promote the single, and that's the first time I ever saw them. They played, uh, I think, four or five dates. Uh, I know they played... Oh, yeah, that's what you uh, were saying, that, right yeah. before the album came out. Right. Glasgow, Manchester, London, Birmingham, and, uh, yeah, I, I saw them. It was a either a Friday or a Saturday night, I th- and then the, the single came out Monday morning. So uh, that was like a mini tour, and then I was expecting them to come around and tour again with the album, but they just did one UK date. They did a London date, which was May the 6th, 1992 and i went i went down to london as well to see that nice um, yeah it's weird that they would birthday. um oh yeah nice did they play other european cities i mean it seems weird yeah. to just pop over to london yeah okay yeah they did there was like paris and i got the tour t-shirt and there's like you know paris and german cities on there but yeah just just the one and they mm. only played mm. in london from that point they only played in london uh for quite some years I think around 2000, I yeah, and from like 92 to, to 2000, they didn't play any other places in the UK. Oh, no, actually, no, that's not true. In 94, they did do a little brief tour, yeah. But it, it seemed to be that London was just like one or two dates in London, and that was it for the UK. Right. And it right. was uh, a long way for me to drive, but I did it again and again. So, so uh, 
Well, how far? I mean, to me, it's just like, you know, it might as well just be driving across Indiana. England just seems <laughs> so yeah. small compared to our massive I know, country. I know. I, I, I realize that when I say, oh, it's like three hours drive, you guys just think, yeah, that, you know, that's how far I go to that's the 7-Eleven. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, in Chicago, it's like you could go 10 miles and it's going to take you an hour. I have to drive, yeah, to Indianapolis or Chicago, and, and I'm going to St. Louis to see them on the flood tour when it finally happens because Chicago all got too sold out. I'm driving four hours to see them next May. Chicago's mm. two and a half, and Indianapolis would be the closest I've seen them in Indy. They're not doing Indy on this flood tour, but that's just an hour. So that's well, easy. I mean, I giggle on Indy, you know. According to Google Maps, from Blackpool, which is like my home city, to uh, London, is uh, 248 miles, but uh, and it would take four hours if I set off right now. But the thing about London is, though, that it can take you three or four hours to get to the outskirts, and then it can take mm -hmm. you another three or four hours just to navigate the place, because London right. is an absolute nightmare. I hate driving <laughs> London. Um, I can so, imagine it's one of those super uh, old cities that just the planning of the roads is, uh, depending planning. on what the city you're in, would be <laughs> right. No planning. Exactly. Well, it, <laughs> you know, actually, funnily enough, uh, I think it was when TMBG were on a, a radio show with Jonathan Ross one time. Jonathan Ross put it the best way that I've ever heard anyone ever explain London, which is we've got a lot of very old things that we don't want to knock down. So we have to go around them. And that's mm -hmm. basically it. There's, we don't have blocks, you know, like when you guys say, Oh, it's a couple of blocks that way, a couple of blocks this way. Right. Right. We don't, we don't ever say that because our streets are not in blocks. They're not neatly organized into, into squares, our roads sure. go all over the place to go round that field. And then, you know, left at the, <laughs> Left at the building, <laughs> right. you know. Turn at the stone bridge. So stone <laughs> the fence, stone bridge. Yeah. The, the, the village stocks. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you when you come across the village idiot, ringing a bell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Man, I got to make it to the UK again. I want to. Yeah. I mean, I've told you, I want to gig in in the UK so bad. Even if it's just like two piece out of or something. You know, oh. I'm always trying to turn our vacations into gigging vacations. But we'll see. We're going to be in Spain next summer. Maybe I can uh, convince Car to you know, we'll like just rent uh, guitars and amps and just play one show in Madrid or something. That'd be so cool. That would be awesome. You know, but yeah, eventually. But yeah, the UK. It's like I mean, it sounds like it's kind of like. My sister lives in Boston, and Boston is a fucking mess. And uh, as far as getting around, because also it's, you know, it's a port city, and just like where the like the geography is, like where where the waterways are and everything. It's just the streets are it's a nightmare. I mean, you know, it's pretty famous. Um, a lot of very famous landmarks again, you know, and like. I don't know if you know anything about like Paul Revere's ride and all this, you know, I mean, as you guys, you know, you were the enemy, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the red coats are coming, that whole thing. Um, but on, on the other side of that coin, if you ever go to Washington, DC, um, well, also a very old city, they've, I don't know at what point it got put on the grid, but there's like, it's so easy to find your way around because, the streets have boring names. There's numbered streets and there's lettered streets. So if you know the alphabet and you know how to count, you can just be like, you know, go like to, you know, five H and then it's like the corner of five H five. This is the level of organization that you guys have. And we don't like, you, you know, we hear that you've got like, you know, 24th street and then after it comes 25th street and yeah, well, we don't. <laughs> makes sense. We do, we do yeah. have, we do have sort of themed, um, 
street names in England because usually when yeah, when yeah. a street is built or a road is built, like a, especially a residential road, they'll usually build like two or three, and so they'll sort of name them all after something similar. So you'll get like, oh, these ones are going to be named after flowers. So you've got like Rose Drive and Rhododendron Avenue or something like that. Sure. And, um, yeah, we got you know, that. Or poets. Mm-hmm. We've got in in the nearby town to me. There's like a Tennyson Avenue and then a, a you know Shelley and. All the poets, Linden. My yeah, my well, that's that's cool. That's cool. My neighborhood, all the streets are named after uh, you know Native American tribes that we ran off the land. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> right, I'm like Wyandotte Avenue, uh, and they're all of course like bastardization, like English bastardizations of what the tribe names actually were, uh, or nation names. You know, so we got Shawnee and Wea and Pontiac <laughs> and all, you know, Cherokee and all these all around here. You, yeah. you probably, I think I, I told you that we've got a French connection in my family. And my sister lives in Paris and my mum and dad lived in, in France for, uh, mm-hmm. for about 10, 12 years and, until uh, some mm. health brought them back to the UK. But um, yeah, so yeah, I've got this sort of French connection. And I just recently found out, I thought this the was the French connection. Uh, yeah, I, I, I thought I thought this was an exclusively British thing, but I've, I've just recently found that Americans, you have this too, like, you have cul-de-sacs, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so we, we French call, word, right? Yeah, cul-de-sac, it means bottom of the bag. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we had a French, some French people over one time and they saw this on a street name and they're like, why, why is this French? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Yeah. <laughs> why? I mean, bottom of the bag I mean, or, or end right. of the bag. You know, they must think that was weird on a on a road sign. But is um, is that like is that slang for something that's bad, or does it literally just mean that's the bottom of a bag of something? Uh, I I I think I, I you know I don't know, but a cul-de-sac here is where it's like a road where you can't go anywhere except turn around and come yeah. back the way. So you know, mm-hmm. you kind of, they yeah. mark roads as cul-de-sacs just kind of trying to deter people from turning down them unless they actually want to go to that road so um mm-hmm. i don't know i guess it's like saying bottom of the bag it's like you can't go any further than the bottom of the bag yeah Maybe makes sense thought it was a french idiom and it isn't <laughs> i know we like grabbing french words to sound fancy for random things yes. um yeah grand prix you know stuff like you know like that um yeah the uh yeah i know it's still it's endlessly fun to to uh talk about shit like this with international people and who knows how the how much the listeners will care but i don't care it's funny well actually maybe they some of them do care a little bit because i remember when chris Connaughton, who is a fantastic uh i believe he's a patreon subscriber i'm to the point where i have enough that i'm can't you know don't have the whole list memorized at this point so that's nice and thank you to all those people mm-hmm. but i remember when he first discovered the podcast he listened to like 18 episodes and then made this huge post in miscellaneous tea as if I love, it's also weird getting to the point where some people might post about me or the podcast and I don't know them and I've never talked to them. At that point, I had never talked to him. And it was just like this review, like episode by episode review of the first like 18 episodes or something. And he pointed out specifically like about how it took me so long to get over, like talking to Abby Bash the first time, a fellow Brit, that he, he like pointed out specifically that it took me like 20 minutes of the episode to get over the fact that I was talking to a British person. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard that one. You never got quite so excited with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that was, you know, a, a two years. Yeah. Wait. When was someone keeps moving my chair? That was, I don't, I mean, that was I don't longer know. ago than I'm thinking. It was a long uh, time. That wasn't, that was the beginning of 2020. It was a long time right? ago. Maybe. 
Maybe we should talk about the statue going to be high and move on. I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, so that was like a year into the podcast. I had a ton of episodes under my belt by that point. I talked to Abby a couple times. I think I talked to Gur Samuel by then, so I'd had a a few more Brits on by then. Um, But clearly we had an exciting conversation, being that it it broke the record of James K. Polk, the previous longest episode. Um, Though I will say I'm recording an episode with those same two guys for Turnaround, my best friend Steve and my very, very good friend and previous record producer, Dan Brooks. Um, we, uh, he, Dan Brooks had signed up for it, and it's like, we got to have Steve on again. So now it's the same trio that went two hours and 15 minutes on James K. Polk is going to be talking about turnaround. But um, the Polk one got political for a while, you know, of course, and uh, Steve was like a history major. So, like, there was a lot of american history related stuff on that polk episode so we'll see how long turnaround goes but we're also planning to record an acapella cover while they're here they're actually coming in person now the vaccinations are a thing so uh that's in a couple weeks should be pretty cool never done an acapella cover of they might be giants fantastic and i i was pretty fond of rachel jones acapella uh, birds fly cover on the purple two pay oh, comp you like that fantastic. one yeah, that's that's really good, and I'm so pleased that my track follows that as well. Um, I mean, oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Just it's <laughs> because it's such like a contrast. I love you know contrast in in you know albums where you've got like a quiet a cappella track and then you know a more rocking track. Mm-hmm. My, my track on that record is starts off with just me and the piano and then and then bills so i thought her track a spiraling was a, shape for yeah. people that don't already have purple to pay i think her, her song is just a great point to build from yeah and that that's why uh again coming up the track list like i told you the the crew involved how hard it was to do the track list with so many songs uh 31 songs and then the bonus tracks um that it was it was sh- pretty much sheerly based on volume level for connecting those tr- too because uh going from you know the acapella just voice um and i mean she's hitting hitting it hard and jazzy but going from that into just piano and voice and then yours the way it built up going into the big alphabet of nations with me and adamant's package uh that just seemed like a good trio to put together also a good span of songs going from one from uh you know a late 80s b-side to a late 90s or mid 90s big hit to um a song that kicked off you know a children's album a decade after that so it's uh, there were so many things to take into account when i was planning that thing out man so uh oh yeah statue got me high that's the one uh <laughs> so uh do you let's dive into what do you think lyrics or music as a starting point I've got a lot to say about the lyrics. Let's talk about the music first. Okay. Sure. So you have covered this song uh, twice. I I noticed you tried to not mention the 2008 piano cover that you uploaded to YouTube. Um, But we'll (laughs) maybe play both of those covers that you did. Um, There was an an aborted uh, attempt to cover, do a big accordion cover of this song. Might still happen. Doesn't matter that it doesn't get on this episode. For the accordion episode, I had wanted to do a giant, like, 11 accordionist cover of this song. And I got to the point of recording drums and bass. But when it came to charting it out, I'm like, I'm going to make a score. I'm going to do music. And then just, like, other shit started happening in my life. And it just didn't happen. Um, But you have covered this song before. You have learned it. Um, What uh, are your thoughts on 
stuff like chord progression, rhythm, and all that, like how hard was it to learn uh, the song? Uh, well, it, because it's so long ago that the song came out, and like I said, I was so excited in anticipation of this coming out. The song i learned it so i learned it all those years ago but i guess i i've refined and changed the way i play it over the years i do remember i do remember coming back from the concert that i first saw it uh played at and just just the line the statue got me high da, 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 da. i that was stuck in my head i couldn't remember anything else about the song but i i did mm-hmm. come home and play da, 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 da. oh yeah right away that. nice absolutely yeah um yeah, the, 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 the chord progression isn't really that complex. It follows the sort of pattern that Linnell uses a lot where, you know, he sort of scales scales the keyboard and, um, yeah. you know, goes up and down with the bass notes and back up again. Um, and then it, it's also got that kind of interesting sort of minor bit, the now it is your turn, before it goes back into the mm-hmm. major G chord. And, yeah, I just... I just love it. Everything about it is is great musically. Um, the first time I heard it though was this live show, and it was a duo show, so it was really very different. And I know you've got a recording of that to play later, but um, the as a duo, there was the drums and bass on tape and nothing else. It was just guitar and accordion. So that sort of beginning bit, which is all um, clarinets and stuff was very kind of screechy and weird played on the accordion and guitar. Yeah. It was more more strange. It was more shocking. And when Linnell said, you know, well, just launched into it, I think at the show I was at, um, it it was like, this is, this is weird. What, what, what is this? And then it quickly, the the song sort of jump starts into it, you know, from that introduction. Um, It's a total non sequitur. Like it's just, I'd like to know if that was how he started writing the song or if he wrote the main chunk of the song and then that got tacked on there. Yeah. Maybe even in the studio. Cause we don't have, you know, uh, well, as far as different versions of this song, there's no, there's no dial a song or demo version. So, so we don't know if there's a version like without that intro or something. Well, that intro, it, it is the same chord progression as, uh, and what they found was just a statue standing where the statue got me. High. It's the same chord progression. As okay, that, but so, it, it, it yeah, is, I guess it's not a total non sequitur. So yeah. Yeah. So it is kind of like that, but both the way that it is on the single and the way that it was performed live that very first time I heard it, it was disjointed and it was strange that they would do that and then suddenly launch into the song. But I, I've always kind of loved that. I found when I, there's got just the so much version, dissonance. There's so much dissonance in the brass on that intro, um, which I believe is, is there actual there? So yeah, Linnell has some clarinet and saxophone on there at the beginning. There are trumpets that I believe are just keyboard trumpet. Cause there, there's no one listed as a trumpet player on the track. Um, but yeah, it's just like it's quieter. It's a very kind of quiet in the mix kind of intro, dissonant, yeah. and the rhythms don't happen. The yeah, the way that the dissonance happens, it kind of fooled me with the chord progression that there's so much dissonance in the way that the volume level and the rhythm is different. Like it doesn't fully mm. kick into that BPM till it hits. It almost just sounds like it's its own thing. You know, I I um I know we like to think that TMBG are just artists and they don't let anything else you know influence their their art and everything but i i can't help feeling that this track was 
designed to follow up their chart success with Birdhouse because there are some similarities to it with Birdhouse. Mm. It, mm-hmm. but, but then there's also it kind of takes on board perhaps some of the criticism that they got for being just a duo because it's so overloaded with, with different instruments. But if, if mm. you think about Birdhouse, it kind of starts with a quiet intro, which mm-hmm. Flansberg mentioned recently in an interview is volumetrically lower than the rest of the song. And that's really weird for a single to be, that's going to get played on radio because it's like, you know, people will be reaching for the volume kind of go, that's quiet. I'm going to turn that up. And then <laughs> the song comes, boom, you know, really kicks in. <laughs> so I mean, I do wonder if maybe that sort of that quiet intro yeah. at the beginning of such, yeah. you got me high with a sort of gentle or uh, gentle clarinet sort of sounds and stuff is kind of meant to mimic that a little bit. It's like something's coming. I'm not sure what it is. Let's turn it up. Da, 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 da. <laughs> so yeah it's 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 uh to get people to rock it harder yeah <laughs> you know it this it's yeah i just feel that there's a bit of a similarity with birdhouse you know there and, and the intention for it to be a radio song but the, the difference between yeah. this this and birdhouse and quite probably quite a lot of other uh flood tracks as well is that it is really really overlaid with instruments i mean you know if you had any doubt that the, the johns were multi-instrumentalists you've got everything on here you've got the guitar the accordion the clarinet the saxophone um you know it's if it, it's mm-hmm. i think they're trying to make it sound like a big rock number you know maybe yeah rock a, li- mm-hmm. a little bit harder than than they did on the previous record but still have their tmbg elements yeah so the and and that's i mean that's the shit i love the most is a Linnell song that has, it's got loud Flansburg guitars, and again, I always, you know, I miss that Flansburg lead guitar style where he was, you know, the guitar in the band. Um, and again, I, I always have to preface it: nothing against Miller, but I miss like the where Flansburg's guitar was the guitar. Um, you know, who's that playing the guitar? Oh, it's Flansburg. The <laughs> but it's so it's got loud guitar, loud drums, but still has the accordion, still has reed instruments. You know, saxophones played by Linnell. Um, cause that's my bread and butter. Like I love a good song where it's like, you know, like the version of Whirlpool that's just like all saxes or a Savoy truffle cover where it's saxes, you know, um, or what am I thinking of? Um, like kiss me son of God where you'll have like some different instruments, but it's like quieter. Let's showcase like some violins or this or that, but this one it's a rocker, but still has accordion, uh, and the saxophones coming through the mix with loud guitars. Yeah, Flansburg's solo guitar stuff was very staccato, wasn't it? He likes staccato sounds. I think Linnell likes staccato sounds as well, and, and Flans was playing guitar on, on, on his tracks often had that style. Uh, when you've got two guitars... Again, talking about UK UK punk bands and post-punk bands, like I feel like there's a lot of influence there oh, yeah. with his playing. A lot of those stabby kind of guitar parts, like uh, a lot of those british bands like like you know joy division and shit like that and flans was a good guitarist but you know he wasn't a great guitarist and um and yeah, uh, yeah. but it didn't matter because of the kind of music that they were doing and they they both kind of use their instruments as like a means to an end <laughs> you know like we've got to yeah produce, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, which is, is is a great very punk sensibility and the statue got me high reminds me a little bit of anna ang in the sense that you know at the beginning you've got flans guitar and then that synth bass sound, and they're mm-hmm. both they're both completely synced, you know, and that's the staccato yeah. way. So you never hear just one 
or the other. It's like they're both going, duh, 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 duh. and you've got that in statue, got me high as well. Flanzi's guitar, and that's, and that's synth, just accompanied with that synth bass. And oh man, on the duo shows that I saw, I just remember that synth bass absolutely going through me. <laughs> you know, that it was so loud. Um, <laughs> Just yeah, and that brilliant. would have been on the backing track for that. Yeah, that, yeah, that setup. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, man. The and the drum machines are so well programmed in this song that, like, I mean, and the drum machines were getting more advanced to where there are things like buzz rolls and like double stroke rolls on the snare in yeah. this that really sound real. Uh, that would have fooled a lot of people more than the drum machines they were using on uh, Flood. I, I, I do criticize the drums a little bit on Apollo 18. I, I feel like okay, I, it might be a production thing, uh, or it might be that they were sort of hitting a glass ceiling with the drum machine because, like you said, they did some really, really impressive drum rolls with the drum machine, but I, you can still tell it's a drum machine. And I feel like with Flood, I mean, they swapped a couple of the tracks out on Flood with real drums, didn't they, which they, they didn't do in Apollo 18 to the best of my Oh, apart from... Uh, uh, she's actual size had real drums on it, but the, um, uh, the, yeah, the drums on flood on Apollo 18 for me kind of let it down a little bit. They seem a little bit, a little bit tinnier, a little bit just, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, like that could also be used them, the maybe. producers or the mixing. Yeah. Cause I'm looking on, I always refer to this Tumblr post or, uh, Flames answered someone, uh, what drum machines did you guys, uh, used to use? And there was some overlap with Flood and Apollo 18 both used the Casio FZ1 sampler. Uh, but then Apollo 18, the new one for that, Apollo 18 and beyond, Roland R8. So um, there, are, there are some that share some drum machines between the two albums. But then the Roland R8 might be the, uh, that might be the instrument that you have the problem with. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> I, 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 just to put it, put it down to a kind of production thing, but... Yeah, it, I mean, it, I love the songs, don't get me wrong, but they, um, just to my ears, it just kind of just sounds a little bit more fake. And it might be maybe because they were pushing it, because they, TMBG did get some criticism from the UK press, sort of because they were just a duo. I mean, you know, they were sometimes accused of having cheesy backing tapes and things. And, mm. and, and of mm. course, when Apollo came out, although it, it was still a duo album, while they were making it, they must have, also been putting the band together in the background because um they they got off that um the the apollo 18 tour of europe and the band was waiting for them back in america so they they must have been sort of cooking both up at the same time so i get the feeling that when we talk about that the statue got me high they were kind of pushing a a more band-like sound but with the drum machine and perhaps that's just where it just comes across as a little bit more fake maybe yeah it's i mean there's so many things to take into account there and like you said trying to you know how much were they responding to criticism or praise from flood going into the writing and recording of apollo 18 it's it's hard to say exactly um i i do like the 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 comparisons you're drawing between birdhouse and this song but in general i almost think like they were 
doing a very punk rock thing in that following up an album like Flood, they were trying to go a little darker. Like, And while Flood and every album always has their dark lyrics, almost like a darker production style and a darker tone, you know, kicking it off with Dig My Grave rather than uh, a beautifully sung Flood intro track. Like, here's this new album. Instead... Dig my grave! <laughs> There's a lot of death on Apollo 18. Isn't there? A lot of death. My, f- my favorite album. Yeah, and I can't wait to talk about Turn Around, too. Um, the, the best album. You know, it's funny. At this point, if... I mean, I do think it's a perfect, a perfect album. Um, though we've talked about this in the past, as far as like a TMBG, uh, album goes, if I was going to lose one thing off of this at this point, it would be fingertips, honestly, because like I've heard it just so many times and, uh, looking for live versions of statue at one show, I'm, I'd have to check which one it was that I, that I sent you. They go into, they lead into without a break into statue with i'm having a heart attack just that one yeah just that fingertip yeah and that's the shit i wish i wish they would do that now just like break the fingertips back up like we get it like okay yeah we know you could do the whole thing without something we're very proud of you you know you've proved you could do it over the past decade break them back up and use them sparingly you know give us just those little bits like i want to hear like please pass the milk please go into anna ing or something like that you know? <laughs> you, you know, i don't know if you know this but the uk version of the apollo 18 cd did not break fingertips up into tracks. i do remember so hearing I, that I've spotify is like that now to too it. yeah i've only ever listened to it as a whole yeah yeah i know and it's funny because the, they they say that part of the reason they did that, and I did the fingertips episodes a long time ago. That was a massive, epic string of episodes. Um, that it was to kind of showcase the new technology that uh, you know everyone had a CD player and you could shuffle. You know that was something you do, couldn't do on cassette or vinyl. You can shuffle the tracks, put it on shuffle mode, and then you know all these little fingertips ones will be spread out around and all mixed up within the album. So you put it as one chunk. You know it doesn't really have the same effect. But uh, yeah, I just, it, it's so funny that things like that were still happening, you know, differentiating UK versions of albums and uh, yeah, oh, it was, it was a mess. Versions. It was a screw up because the CD lists um, spacesuit as track thirty eight, so it was meant oh. to be. Uh, it was meant to be done that way, but for some reason, it wasn't. That's weird. I mean, on. It was on Electra still in the UK, right? Oh, yeah, there yeah. isn't like a, no. a British version of Electra, yeah. Um, yeah, because it's like that a lot these days with like smaller labels. You know, if someone has is, is an American band, but it's just just on that level that they may have toured Europe a little bit, have enough popularity that a different label will put out their record in, you know, in Europe. Uh, than in the u.s but with electra it's like it's weird that they would differentiate in the 90s where it's like well i, you know, I mean back just... in the Beat- beatles era it's like they were mixing up tracks all over the place and coming out with different different albums completely like screwing stuff up for the you know a lot of yeah. americans now are like the uk versions those are the real ones i only listen to the <laughs> uk stones albums you know that's that's the right track listing yeah it's funny but yeah, it, it just comes across um, like a big, big number um, or, you know, an attempt to be, you know, a really, really big, big number with with the sort of layers of instruments on it. And, um, and, and I thought, I did think it was a little bit 
of an unusual choice because they probably thought that they were they were really rocking out. But I think by the time this appeared in the UK, I don't think rock bands were really doing horns anymore at that time. And it Boom. probably came across a little bit more tin pot than it was meant to be, you know. Um, the solo, you know, with the, with the, the sax on it as well, that kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, that kind of gets me down a little bit. Even now what? hearing it, <laughs> like I, I guess because because of the time that it came out and because of the the feeling at the time of being a seventeen, sixteen, seventeen year old, uh, you know, super fan who just really wanted them to do well in the charts, and they've got kind of this <laughs> solo. <laughs> <laughs> it was just it's so oh, great i was just talking about how that's one of my favorite things about this song <laughs> well yeah now well, yeah I, now i do kind of love it oh uh while we're talking about the music stuff have you ever noticed the the sort of two dueling guitars in that section oh yeah the dirt like the little bends and stuff oh yeah yeah if you if you isolate the left or the right speaker you, you mm-hmm. hear two very, very different solos kind of like overlapping. Yeah, yeah. So it's beautifully done. Yeah, that's a great section. I love the saxophone rips. I mean, hell, I'm finally in a band that has multiple saxophones. I mean, that's the kind of shit I love. And I just released the episode of Call You Mom, which is full of growling saxes. And Outdoor Valor has played that live. And then we did a different version without sax, with kazoos instead of saxes for the Purple Toupee compilation. Uh, and... I love that shit. So I love that they're still doing it. They were doing it back then. It was all Linnell back then. Now we got Linnell, Stan Harrison, uh, who his episode will be out by now as well. Um, love the saxes. And uh, that may have been that, that combined with like Motown, I think uh, really churned up this love of like baritone sax and stuff in, in me, you know? So are we, should we move on to lyrical elements or you got, you got something else? Okay. No, no, no. Lyrics. You know, this is a band that, uh, you know, usually their songs have words in it. So we should talk about them. It's it's always funny. It's not as weird as like when the Beach Boys would do an instrumental track. I'm like, you guys are known for your vocals and vocal (laughs) harmony. It's so funny. Do an instrumental track. All right. Um, Statue got me high. Hi. In parentheses. So, <laughs> um, here, you want to read that first that first point under the trivia? Are you looking at it? You want me to read it? Yes. In my, in my BBC radio voice. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, Linnell, oh, should I do it in a Linnell voice? I don't know. I, should, I can't do an impression. I want to hear what that sounds it. like. Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a song. No. Uh, it says... <laughs> i already love it (laughs) he says it's kind of a song about having an epiphany or something the song actually started with completely different lyrics that's what i was saying about dummy lyrics i think the song was called the apple of my eye (laughs) the apple apple of my my eye (laughs) we should do a version where we say that when it's I like yesterday to... being scrambled eggs. Oh, fantastic. Right? <laughs> scrambled eggs. When I came up with the line, the statue got me high, it amused me. Oh, that's nice that he, it amused him. Uh, it was taking two things and putting them <laughs> together, not a non sequitur, but something sort of interesting and odd about the juxtaposition of those two things. Part of it is that the idea that a statue would be in a public square, a monument, not necessarily a work of art, but something that's just subtly immobile and represents something that's in the past. Just the idea of blowing somebody's mind. It seems like 
one of the least likely things to make the top of your head come off. And that's what <laughs> happens in the song. Hmm. Yes. So that was in their own words. Songwriters talk about the creative process by Bill Demain. So is this, I mean, is this a full book in their own words? Um, what do you think about that before we move on? Cause he kind of slightly changes and slightly embellishes what he said about the song over the years. This is one of the few songs where they're like, this is what it's about, but then they'll say a little different or tack onto it. What do you, what do you think of that quote? I listened back to our last podcast together as a bit of homework for this oh, yeah? uh, podcast because yeah. I didn't want to repeat myself. My wife says I do, do that a lot. <laughs> and he, you really <laughs> repeat yourself a lot. Yeah, so what do, you, what do you think? And, um, so, and when we talked about someone keeps moving my chair, I mean, I said to you that if, if the band say this is what the song's about, then that's what it's about. And I'm not really interested in like, other interpretations, uh, especially not the kind of high school debate interpretations uh, mm-hmm. like you get in uh, gigantic when they're talking about particle man <laughs> but i'm going to be i'm probably going to come across as hypocritical here because i've always had a really really what i thought was a clear idea about what this song was about and it's not what linnell's saying there and th- when i read that quote which is recently because i was doing a bit of research for this episode i was kind of disheartened and i thought oh yeah I, i've really been very wrong about this song but then, you know, he's really kind of talking about the, the process of, of creating a, a literal story, you know, about the statue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah. Linnell's songs are very rarely literal. I mean, Birdhouse in Your Soul is about a nightlight, but is it? A, but it's kind of, also, you know, it's wrapped in another metaphor about a blue canary. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, and again, lightening this to Birdhouse, um, I, I still think there's some validity in in my interpretation of this song, uh, even in, in the light of what Linnell's saying there, that, you know, it's just mm-hmm. about a statue making a guy's head explode. Um, Cause I've always, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I, I've always understood this to be a song about a space disaster. A space disaster. Was that just and, the video you know, influencing it though? And, or the and, whole Apollo 18 title of the album and well, all that? Well, okay. Hear me out. <laughs> Hear me out, because, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Um, t- the statue got me high. I always understood it to be a space song. Okay, so not just the marketing stuff, which you've mentioned, like the cover of the single, and uh, which, okay, so the cover was repeated in the Apollo 18 uh, album pictures. But if you look at the cover of the statue got me high single and the other singles, you know, the statue got me high is the only one that says space. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the cover mm-hmm. of Apollo 18... It doesn't really say, I mean, apart from the tiny little lunar <laughs> module in the corner, it says yeah. whales, <laughs> whales and squids. It uh, yeah. doesn't really say space. Uh, but, sure, but, sure. But there was more than that. You've got the you've got the video, which is really spacey, and, you know, Linnell launching flans into space and, uh, and the, the spacemen skateboarding. Um, but, but also, have you seen that Apollo 18 uh, sort of teaser trailer video thing that does the rounds? The one that's got integrity project oh. on it yes so uh-huh. so that's that video says uh, and it and it claims to be written by the band it says at the start hi this is john and john we can't talk right now um it, it actually <laughs> says uh the album's got a new single the statue got me high the video plays and then afterwards it says apollo 18 doesn't just contain space songs however 
<laughs> and then it talks about these other things. So to me, a statue got me high is a space song. Uh-huh. When you think about mm. it, what what other space songs are there on Apollo eighteen? I mean, see the constellation isn't really a space song. It's kind of a bit starry. <laughs> um, yeah, it's but using it's, that. But yeah, it's, well, but not yeah. really in a spacey way. I mean, it's somebody who sees a constellation as a result of lying down. Then you've got spacesuit, which isn't. You know, <laughs> it's space in title only. Uh, I think Spacesuit is actually one of their earliest songs, and I think it was renamed for Apollo 18. It was an instrumental that Flans wrote, and I think they even played it at their very first show, that Sandinista rally, and it was called something else. It might have been called something about Broadway. Mm. Uh, and so, again, renamed for the album. I think mm-hmm. Statue Got Me High was intended to be a song about space. And... Um, if you think about the statue got me high, I mean, what could the statue be? I always thought it was like a rocket and the rockets killed somebody. And then you've got lines like, you know, as the screaming fire engine siren filled the air, the evidence had vanished from my charred and smoking chair. It it sounds to me like a space disaster. And and that's what I've always believed it to be. Um, Space fire engines? No, no, no! Like, <laughs> like, a, like a mistimed rocket launch. You know, like, I mean, like so it maybe, came crashing down to Earth. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, maybe the, maybe not directly about the Challenger disaster, but like that kind yeah. of thing. You know, I mean, um, you, you know, maybe like a mistimed rocket launch or something. And again, you look at the video, and you've got. I know they don't do storyboard videos so much. The videos don't always bear out what's in the lyrics, but. Mm-hmm. To a degree, they do. Like the video to Birdhouse is full of lights, and you know, for somebody watching the song and not getting the metaphor that it's not about a bird, it's about a light, uh, would mm-hmm. kind of go, "Why is this? Why is this video full of light bulbs?" Um, but and the statue got me <laughs> exactly. And the statue got me high. It's like it's about statue, but the video's saying space, and mm-hmm. you know, Linnell's launching fans into space into a, in a rocket that. Is it shaped like a statue, or is it the, like the Empire State Building? Or I, I it's Empire State Building. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, like some little model you would have gotten at a uh, souvenir store, or you know, <laughs> at the base of the Empire State Building. <laughs> but it's Linnell that's launching him into space, isn't it? And then when it comes to the bit, and now it's your turn, your turn to hear the stone, and then your turn to burn. It's Linnell that's burning. So I, I, I always mm-hmm. kind of thought it's like the, the, the uh, perhaps metaphorical. Uh, meaning is uh, it's kind of saying, you know, people get launched into space and they die and then it's, you know, but it doesn't stop people going into space. It kind of carries on. So I I don't don't know. I I don't know. I don't know. That's just the feeling I got anyway. And I I believe that the Apollo 18 space year thing came about because they approached NASA for the stock photos. I I think that's the story Mm -hmm. I heard. So, you know, they weren't, they weren't writing songs about space because NASA wanted them to. It was more they <laughs> NASA because they had a space song. Well, th- that's what I've always thought anyway. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah. Well, okay. So, again, in the art episode, yeah. So, they were searching the NASA archives for, for graphics. And the, the NASA selected them as musical ambassadors for the International Space Year. So... And, and then the back cover of uh, Apollo has the international, uh, or what's it called? The International Space Year 
graphic is included on the back. So yeah, so they really went all in with the space thing, and it would probably help that you know NASA didn't ask them to write songs about space. But I think the art was in, was affected by them choosing them to be the musical ambassadors, which is great. Um, so yeah, so that oh, and and a quick fact check on uh, spacesuit. You're correct that it was not originally called that. It was called. And you were close. I think you said something about Broadway. It's called I'll Remember Third Street. Oh, okay. Third yeah, Street. written in 1983. Street, by chance? It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> That's a callback. That's a callback to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well so, done. You know, I'm prepared to accept that I'm, I might be really wrong, but I've held on to that for a long, long time, and I've always believed that was the case. So, yeah, in light of what Linnell said in these quotes, it, it might not be the case, but a little part of me still thinks that maybe Linnell doesn't want to talk about, you know, that kind of meaning maybe i don't know um yeah they, they've they've thrown us off the scent before but let's go ahead and uh, i'll probably drop in the audio here but let's uh let's talk about then the next one it kind of builds on that a little bit 1993 radio interview on kroq who has this encounter with um a statue of some kind and it makes his head explode and that's so that's really all there is to the lyrics of the song the statue got me It's not, the song is not about hard drugs, and it's not, it's not taking an advocacy position either. It's just describing this particular experience, which no one has ever had. <laughs> which no one has ever had. <laughs> which is, so he's kind of piling on his previous quote, um, but he does mention that, you know, there's no, it's not about drug use yeah and, and the, um, the other yeah. quote that's there sorry if i'm jumping ahead but the one from the 1994 show which is it's on the live from new york cd is where he says uh this song is based on the life of don giovanni which i didn't know when i wrote the song i, I kind of get the impression that <laughs> people have gone to linnell and said you know the statue got me high is it about don giovanni uh, is, is it about drugs and he's just gone no no no. Uh, so so, so I, he I, headed to the opera <laughs> to find out. <laughs> so I, I get the impression that maybe people ask Linnell what this song is about a lot, and maybe he enjoys not telling them. Uh, I mean, by right. all means, let's let's go to him and say, is this song about a shuttle disaster? And see what he says. Uh, you know, he might blow it out of <laughs> the water. But Yeah. But, yeah, I actually looked into Don Giovanni quite a bit. So yeah, even though he says... Or he claims, again, it could be completely based on Don Juan, Don Giovanni, uh, the Spanish version, the the uh, Italian version. Um, it could be completely based on that, completely influenced by that, but just at first he didn't want to admit it, and then he does, still claims that he didn't know about it. I mean, how do you not know about Don Giovanni? Now, tr- you know, Don Juan is usually, you know, people, that's like uh, a negative term for someone usually used in a negative way, someone who is a ladies' man and very smarmy and kind of, you know, manipulates women to to be with them and stuff like that. And so that's what Don Juan is. And I was reading about the different versions of it. And, yeah, it's like, it's, it's like this is what happens. The guy is killed by a statue in different ways in the different versions. Mm. Um, like in, so there's there's so many different, 
versions. Let's see. So Don Juan, uh, the earliest written version, and I don't need to go through this whole thing, but it was pretty interesting, especially since I'm married to a Spanish lit professor. It was originally uh, a play, El Burlador de Sevilla y Convidado de Piedra, The Trickster of Seville and the Stone Guest, published in Spain around 1630 uh, by uh, Gabriel Tellez. So in 1630, this guy, yeah, and it's, you know, Seville gets all the cool things. He gets the barber, gets the trickster, uh, the stone guest. So it's an evil man that seduces women. And this was, of course, like everything back then, written with a religious meaning or some sort of big moral uh, to the story. It's a demonic attribute. The devil shapeshifts. This guy, he can kind of uh, use all these different tricks to manipulate women and seduce them. Um, and uh, Tirso, his actual name, uh, the guy that wrote it, felt that young people were throwing their lives away because they believed that as, uh, as long as they made an act of contrition before they died, they would automatically receive God's forgiveness for all the wrongs they had done. So he argues that there's a, there's penalty for sins. They are unforgivable sins. And the devil, Don Juan, um he cannot escape this punishment and at one point he yeah so there's he's seducing all these people and he's going to dinner with all these people he ends up going to dinner with this statue and the statue essentially kills him and then so this was the spanish golden age but they're the the one that a guy brings up in the tbw interpretations is moliere uh the french French dude, his Dom Juan au le festin de Pierre in 1665, so 35 years later. Um, and that was, I think, just, you know, it popularized it. And then there were a bunch of other versions. Carl was familiar with Jose de Esperanceda's uh, poem. She was familiar with this poem, poem El Estudiante de Salamanca. And then Jose Zoria's play, Don Juan uh, Tenorio, in 1844. So 1840 and 1844. Uh, and then right in the middle of that is is uh, Mozart's uh, Don Giovanni is 17... What is it? Don Giovanni. Uh, premiered 1787. And in that one, reading the synopsis was... was pretty interesting let me find the the cool part there in act two um so yeah he's this very kind of pompous guy you know thinks he can do whatever he wants and and everyone loves him um so yeah the statue is on someone's tomb i hope i'm not mixing these up it's the tomb of someone and he is kind of like laughing he's all jovial he doesn't care about anyone else he's like laughing at the statue um and he jokes about he, how he should invite the statue to dinner. Well, later, the statue, uh, as, as like the overture comes back, reharmonized with diabolic diminished sevenths, uh, which is how Wikipedia puts it. Um, Don Giovanni, you invited me to dine with you. Uh, the statue asks him if he will now accept his invitation to dinner. So Don Giovanni's like, sure, right? And he shakes the statue's hand, uh, only to collapse with sudden chills. The statue says, will you repent as Don Giovanni's dying? And he says, no, he will not repent. Uh, and the statue disappears. Don Giovanni cries out in pain and terror as he is surrounded by a chorus of demons who carry him down to hell. 
talk about something that Linnell would have been so into. Like this sort of been like, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I can come see on. It's called, would make, you know. <laughs> I can see why people would make the connection, especially with the, the taking his hand. You know, it took my hand and killed me. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah, so I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. come on. <laughs> I mean, may, maybe I'm looking for meaning where there isn't that one. But I just looking at this quote again from Linnell, where he said that the idea about the statue would be in a public square. So this is a, a statue mm-hmm. outdoors, okay? So the evidence had vanished from my charred and smoking chair. D- do you have chairs outside? I mean, I, I, if you were... Yeah, like, you can have... you Dining al fresco. Oh, no, sure. but I'm like, like in a public place, I don't think you would call it a chair. You would call it like a bench or a seat. Uh, yeah, yeah, typically there aren't... I guess it depends. I mean, if you're in some sort of garden area or whatever i don't yeah uh-huh. i mean there could be chairs outside yeah but but, but, you but have benches chairs. would be more yeah. you'd have yeah. you'd have a chair in the cockpit of a of a spaceship <laughs> <laughs> hey i you know i i'm not going to you know diminish your interpretation i <laughs> you know it's hard not to yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's something to that too. And yeah, I, think, I mean, I, I, I'm a way off, but I, I get the feeling that it's the, the, there's a space theme. The space theme of Apollo 18 was centered around this song. But hey, who knows? It's a long time, and uh, he's not given us any clues this far. Yeah, um, yeah, not to that effect. But um, I mean, whatever they're about, it's so fun to sing and it also felt a little naughty because he says it's not about drugs but he says the statue got me high and then just the hi just like the wonderful harmonies there uh in the back and you know Linnell in the video like his hands cupped to his mouth singing that it felt a little naughty to be saying something like oh the the Johns are talking about getting high like you know (laughs) who knows if either of them has ever been high in their life you know they're you know uh caffeine high uh but it's just such a fun song to sing and whether you're imagining it in your head singing while you're singing as it being more literal or more metaphorical it's fun either way i mean the granite sent a beam into my eye yeah it killed me and it turned me to the sky uh so did you go to heaven in this case it turned him to the sky uh, uh well this is just the thing. so I, many I fun lines i i've always taken it literally like big it got them high as in you know it's a it's a in sh- the rockets in yep. the rocket yeah and and uh, yeah. You know, it threw me to the sky and but there's also if you take it literally if you just say well it's just a story about a statue there's sort of contradictory parts isn't it like it took his hand and killed him and threw him to the sky mm-hmm. but then it sent mm-hmm. a beam into his eye so did it take his hand and then send the beam uh you know um and also like if there was nothing left of him, if he was just like, you know, no, what is it? What does it say about his coat? My coat contained a furnace where there used to be a guy. Uh, did, he, <laughs> yeah. did, did he? Did he burn? He was the guy. Did he burn <laughs> because of the laser beam? Uh, uh, did he be? Was there anything left of him to throw into the sky? <laughs> uh, there's a lot of questions <laughs> if you take it literally. Um, he dies in many ways. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I better make sure. Referring he's dead. to all the different versions. <laughs> yeah, referring to all the different versions of Don the Don Juan tale, because he oh, does okay. die in different ways. There's there's okay. one. Uh, which one was I was reading the the so he sits to dinner with the statue and the statue feeds him a meal of scorpions and snakes or something like that. 
So that's one of the other versions is the, like in this one, he outright, like he shakes his hand and he starts dying. Um, and then he's surrounded by demons, but there's one where he's literally at dinner with the statue and the, the statue's like, here's your meal. And it kills him. <laughs> so, I mean, the, so I guess he just came up with all these different ways he could die. I don't know. I always took it as that he was being hypnotized, like the beam okay. into his eye yeah. and he's high. He's like, whoa. He's like, I'll discombobulate. Like, whoa, what's going on? And then, you know, he's, he's stunned and he can be killed by this animated mineral, which is a great line that I yes. could not figure out that line for the longest time. An animated mineral can be heard. I, I remember thinking it was an animated... <laughs> I think I, I think when I first heard it, I thought it was an animated man of rock. I think that's what I thought. Mm, <laughs> man of rock, it can be heard. Yeah. Yeah. Until, sure. I, read, until I got the lyrics. <laughs> and I think in a parallel yeah. universe, me, me and you, the, the song was called The Apple of My Eye, and, and I'm arguing with you that the, <laughs> the apple represents the moon. <laughs> <laughs> no, the moon is a pie in the sky. We all know that. Or, or it's made of cheese. Uh, not an apple. <laughs> it's just such a good song. You know, the charred and smoking chair. There's just so much good imagery in this uh the sculptor's chisel yeah the furnace yeah the coat like the coat doesn't burn it's like one of those flame retardant coats the coat there, there's a furnace he's burning up inside of the coat but the coat is unharmed it's kind of like the, the uh, my mind it almost sounds that, like that the kind of coat an astronaut might wear a, a fire retardant oh uh, they are fire retardant <laughs> yep yeah. mm-hmm. that's true that's true hey I, you know yeah it got me I'm, high uh, i mean you know a, 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 a like the space shuttle sitting on the launch pad waiting to go off does have a statue type look to it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, like I said in the video, it is sort of literal. I mean, Flans is inside the, the rocket and uh, Linnell launches him into space and you've got the blocks that they're standing on, which is like the planets of the solar system. And it's a, it's a yeah, spacey yeah, cool. video, isn't it? And uh, did you has, see, uh, has England say, ever did... sent a man to space? Has England never sent him a space? No, England doesn't have a space program. Um, <laughs> Just um, like, eh, what, what would what? Oh, okay, what would the British? It's too rainy to send a. It's 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 never it's never not raining. It's never not cloudy. We can't get the good conditions <laughs> yeah. to launch a rocket. <laughs> Still yeah. try. Uh, we, we there was uh, a British sort of space um, thing a few years ago. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you read about this. I'm gonna have to Google this actually just to just to check. But um, yeah, th there was a um, there was a Mars uh, um, Mars mission uh, that was going up, and I think it was a NASA mission, and mm -hmm. uh, a, a British sort of space agency uh, created a little lander called Beagle Two, you know, uh, sort of oh. lovingly named after. Uh, Darwin's ship, Darwin, yeah, and mm -hmm. uh, and it was basically just like this little thing that was going to parachute down onto Mars, and and then it was going to open up and it had solar panels in and it was going to relay information back, and um, we we didn't have the means to launch it, but they they piggybacked it on some other uh, yeah. some other ship. I don't know if it was a, an American thing and that was and as it was flying past mars it threw sort of beagle out and this is how cool it was okay um the uh one um, one of the members of the band blur wrote the little call sign music 
for it. Mm. So what was going to happen mm. was this wow. thing was this thing was going to land <clears throat> on Mars, and then they, you were they were going to hear that it was successful <laughs> with this little call sign, wow. this musical signature. <laughs> Written by one cool. of the band members from Blur, um, but it, uh, yeah, they lost, they lost connection to it, and they, uh, oh. it, it, it never relayed anything back. And I think a more oh, right. recent Mars mission that was successful, some, you know, rover found it where it had crashed, and it was so close to working, uh, it just hadn't. The solar panel hadn't opened up, and so it, it hadn't worked for that uh, reason. Couldn't but, get power. Yeah, yeah, mm. but uh, but yeah, Bummer. that's. Oh. Uh, that's the only British space thing that I can think of. Uh, we, we do satellite television. <laughs> but that, that's uh, it. So, the, yeah, right. let's, uh, let's talk about live versions. Let's talk about the Tonight Show appearance. Okay. What do you think? Yeah, so they play... Um, and I'm not sure if this is how Leno was always doing in the 90s. I don't remember, and I was a Letterman guy anyway. Uh, that they played two songs. They played... Um, the guitar actually was the first one, which surprisingly I, I would have thought that statue would have been first. And then there's a little couch appearance and then they come back later and they play uh statue. I love the, <laughs> I love when they get those little, those brief moments, uh, from the nineties where they would get a little couch time on the shows. You know, usually it was Conan, but, uh, to talk to Jay Leno, who I fucking hate, He's always been a fucking douchebag. Uh, it is pretty funny to hear him try to relate. This guy who has no... He's just not at all on that same wavelength as guys like the Johns, whereas like Conan, totally similar wavelength, similar yeah. brain uh, workings, you know, comedic sensibilities. Leno is like, <laughs> they start talking about crowd surfing and, <laughs> and they call it past the dude, which is just the, which is what I'm going to call crowd surfing from now on. <laughs> past the dude. <laughs> now, what is the sort of ritual that they do at the concert now? Uh, well, they're young kids today who like to pass each other around over their heads and for some reason they do it at our shows which we always thought was particularly weird when we're playing like quiet folky acoustic numbers now when you say pass each other around perhaps well, the, those perhaps not quite uh, we we refer to it as pass the dude in our band. It's sort of so you mean let each other pick the person up yeah, and pass them yeah see we try to sort of we set do the set list like you know quiet song moderate you know then the sort of thrash metal right. rocker number you know it's like paced out that way and and usually by the time that like all the dudes get hoisted up it's like right at the sort of we're back at the right power ballad part. okay but now that you explain it, it all makes sense right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hell, but 
what do you think about their performance here on the uh, on the Tonight Show? I I really like this. Uh, this sounds uh, so much like uh, the live show from from the time, but it. If you compare this to the 94 live setup that they had, which was like the John Henry band, they they played this song a little bit differently. They slowed down sections of it. And I always thought that was a bit bogus. I like the the, the, the <laughs> constant yeah. speed of it. Because although it does mm-hmm. have those sort of slow down moments, um, sort of breakdown moments, uh, now it is your turn, your turn. It's... It, it, the slowdown for me is a mistake, and I don't know why they yeah. did that. But th- this is uh, this is absolutely spot on. Uh, all the recordings I've heard from this era, this nineteen ninety three period, where they just got a band ninety two ninety three, sorry, where they they'd got a band uh, together. Th- to me, that they sound really great. They sound exactly how I think or I imagine TMBG's band would sound. They they got mm-hmm. musicians in to do the parts that were on the record. So from 94 onwards, when they started writing for the band, I guess that's when they sort of came at it from a different angle. But yeah, the, the, the pace of this is absolutely spot on. It captures the energy of the record and takes it up a level. It's really good. Mm-hmm. So this performance is notable in that it is the only uh, TV appearance uh, for Jonathan Feinberg, known as J.D. Feinberg at the time, as he will explain in a little sound clip that he sent us. He is going to tell us a little bit about uh, what it was like being on, uh, well, I guess a little bit about The Late Show as well as The Tonight Show. Jonathan Feinberg called in. Let's listen to it. Hi, this is Jonathan Feinberg, uh, known at the time as J.D. Feinberg, to disambiguate me from the other Johns in the band, some of whom you know. Uh, I do remember things about playing The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. I remember uh, in the studio that it was a union shop, as opposed to the David Letterman show. David Letterman, uh, everything was really efficient, uh easy, high quality, fun, and the stage sound was, in fact, the best live stage sound I've ever had. That was with uh, Lisa Loeb. With the Giants, we played The Tonight Show, and it was a union shop, and so you literally were not allowed to touch a microphone. There had to be like two or three guys uh, (laughs) handling the microphone stand if you wanted it moved. I also had to play inside a plexiglass box, which I had never had to do before, and it was... uh, uncomfortable and the sound wasn't very good. Um, so there was that. Uh, Branford Marsalis was really, really nice to us. And in fact, the whole band, everybody was just so kind and fun to be with and enthusiastic, way into the music, and they played their asses off. Um, and in fact, the trumpet player, whose, whose name, unfortunately, I cannot remember, uh, was so into us that he, we, when we played L.A. again, he showed up and like joined us on stage. It was really great. Um, I also remember uh, after taping, uh, running to the airport, <laughs> flying to San Francisco, checking into our hotel, the Phoenix, um, just in time to turn on the TV and watch ourselves do the show. And that was really fun. So those, oh, and of course I remember hanging out with Sid Straw, who is uh, one of my favorite humans. So there you go. 
Sid was great. Everybody, everybody was, it was just a, a really pleasurable, fun time. So, yeah, he did not get any appearances in music videos. I mean, heck, only Doherty and, and uh, Maimone, only, they only got one video, you know, Snail Shell. And then, uh, and then their eras were over by the time uh, Dr. Worm rolled around. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's his time to shine. And what's, what's weird is that the, the Tonight Show band is playing along with him. For some reason, their drummer, whatever their drummer's name is, is also playing in the distance. Did you notice that from that one, uh, from wherever those drums are located, side stage? I their drummer is playing as well. Yeah. If you look, when they do a side shot of the drums, you'll see uh, of, of JD on the drums. Jonathan, he doesn't go by JD. That was only for that being in the band. Um, he, uh, You can see their saxophone players, the one covering the sax lines, the house band. Uh, and then behind him, you can see the other drummer kind of playing quietly. It's like, why do you need double, double drums? I mean, unless you're going to do something really wild and, and play into that. It's just kind of funny that he's playing along. Um, which they've had studio drummers play along with them. Like Anton Fig has played with them on, uh, the late show, uh, when they've played Letterman back in the duo era. But that makes sense if there's no drummer there anyway. So Feinberg, his drums are definitely the prominent ones in the mix and he sounds great. Um, what do you think of his, uh, his, uh, his, his little story, his stories there? Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. Um, it's interesting that he, he compared it to other shows, like by saying that it was the, a union thing. Uh, you know, he sort of complained about all the all the issues that uh, they had on the Leno show because of the uh, the unions that were there. You know, they weren't allowed to touch their own microphones because that was stealing someone else's <laughs> job. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny. I mean, I I wouldn't say he definitely does not come across as some sort of conservative anti-union person. Oh no, but it's funny how in different professions. How, um, I mean, how the, the flood logo is essentially a union logo. That's the stagehands. Uh, they were parodying the stagehands uh, logo, which I saw recently in a Seinfeld episode. This is it's totally just, sorry, going off on this tangent. I meant to take a picture of it. We were watching. Were you a Seinfeld fan? Uh, not really. No, it sort of passed me by. But I, I'm aware sure. of it. I, I like Curb. Well, so there's a show. Oh yeah, there's a show within the show. Like they actually uh, pair. Uh, they kind of make fun of their own show by um, a plot in the season four is that they get a show. Jerry gets a show on NBC, and it's called. I think it's just called Jerry, right? And so it shows them kind of like shooting it. And he's backstage, like looking at his lines or something, uh, or talking to someone. And on the back of the set, it has the that flood-looking shape spray painted, like uh, okay. you know, uh, stenciled on the back of the set. I was meaning to take a picture of it because it almost looks like like he's standing in front of the set. They might be Giants logo on the back. It's like no, that's they were stealing a logo as well <laughs> and making it their own, uh, which is why I don't feel so bad about parroting the flood logo because they were doing it themselves. Um, but anyway, so the union thing, yeah, like, uh, he's definitely a progressive guy. I'm sure he's not anti-union, oh, yeah, but it yeah. is funny how there's some things like Teamsters and other unions where you'll, there will be corruption, and not that he's talking about corruption, but he's talking about how it is just, there's these very strict rules for whose job it is and how much they're getting paid and all that stuff, which kind of probably slowed things down rather yeah. than just Linnell, like, oh, my mic needs to be up a, an inch here. Like, no, 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 no. 
that's uh that's phil over here that's phil's job that's probably <laughs> it's probably a case of of like tmbg being like so down to earth that they would just adjust their own mic you know they wouldn't like be so prissy as to say you know you come yeah. over here and move this mic up an inch they just do it themselves but in that sort of scenario it's just funny um yeah so it was interesting it was funny to hear his, his memories of that um uh, it was, wasn't how he was expecting it and then I followed up with him because he mentions a trumpet player that was uh, really nice and that came out to a show later. Uh, so I was trying to figure that out, and there is a much shittier wiki about uh, like late show bands and tonight show bands. Um, so he finally figured it out. It's Sal Marquez, who played with Zappa like seventy three to seventy five. Played on Zappa records and live, yeah. and and he told me. Uh, Jonathan said he kept saying to us I haven't had this much fun since Zappa and this reminds me of playing with Zappa and I said damn that's some high praise right there (laughs) (laughs) so some cool stories from a guy that was there he was there so I I don't think he got to meet Leno because I asked him this specifically I'm like if you got to meet Leno what was he like I don't think he ever interacted with Leno as the drummer you know you don't even see Leno come out and shake their hands at the end like most uh talk show host you'll see them come out and and you know oh that was great guys yeah whatever no and he was behind plexiglass anyways he was like hey drummer can't shake your hand you're behind a wall (laughs) (laughs) pretty funny um so yeah i guess i sent you some other live versions were you wanting to play the uh the live in nyc as an an, uh semi-official release of the song should we play that one uh yeah yeah sure and that's the one that has the introduction you were mentioning yeah by uh, Linnell, yeah. This song is based on uh, the life of Don Giovanni, which I didn't know when, when I wrote the song. Here we go. probably noticed what i'm talking about with the sort of slowed down sections uh it, it just seems slightly just slower and it's it, for me it spoils the pace of of the song which is pretty fast they did go through a period yeah. where they played a number of songs slower one of them was anna ang in fact they even used to say we've been playing this song too fast for 20 years um uh, and uh, <laughs> i don't jeez i don't know if i've heard that yeah uh, okay it wasn't well it probably wasn't 20 years it, um they played Anna Ang a whole lot slower, sort of in the late nineties, um, mm-hmm. but that, thankfully they've they sped up again. Um, yeah, it's just something about this. I, I, I doesn't quite sit with me, so I'm I'm not a big fan yeah, of this version. I agree. I agree. Um, the other oh, and the other uh, live performance they did was uh, something you uploaded. Why don't you tell us about this one? Yeah, well, when they came to the UK to. Uh, promote the single they appeared on the jonathan ross show uh, now jonathan ross is well known in the uk he's had a lot of different chat shows 
and he was really kind of um a pioneer of that american style format that you're so familiar with like every you know you've got a late show and then the late late show and the later show with this person and that person um we, yeah <laughs> jonathan ross kind of stole that format and brought it to the uk um so it's it's very very similar setup and i was so excited to see this they mentioned it at this mini tour that they were going to be appearing uh, on the jonathan ross show massive cheer went up uh, everyone was so excited to see them on tv and um yeah they they performed it because they were touring as a duo so they performed it with the house band for the show which uh was the love band fronted by steve naive and he played with elvis costello and the attractions for quite a long time i think he was like super cool classic lineup so interesting that they would be performing uh with that the sound on it you know at the time i was like oh this doesn't sound so good like years later i listened to it and i think uh I think, oh, yeah, it's not so bad. But at the time, yeah. I, I felt like the voices were straining a little bit. And I, it, it is really hard to get levels right in a, in a TV studio, I imagine. Um, some mm-hmm. TV studio mm-hmm. performances come across really, really well, and others just not so well. Um, so, But apart from, apart from the vocals perhaps being not quite the best they can be, this is a really, really great performance. And the, the first time I had ever seen them playing with a full band. Some of these items, but now the peak of this awesome K2 of a program is upon us to play us out in their own unique style. Probably the most dangerous and exciting rock and roll band in the world today. The only group, in fact, that have had the insight and courage to point out that everybody wants to wear prosthetic foreheads on their real heads. Please welcome, they might be giants. <laughs> It almost sounds like they cut his mic before he finishes at the end. Like Linnell's looking at the camera and it's the statue got you high. You know, that last <laughs> note. It's like you can't hear him at all. I'm like, did they think the song was over and just cut it? Sorry, yeah, to, I, I can't even hear it. I feel like maybe the levels in the studio weren't weren't right. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And I think maybe Linnell was just sort of like ending on a, a quieter note but it just mm-hmm. a little yeah. bit too quiet what is really yeah. cool though is that when the the band immediately launch into the closing uh music for the show uh linnell <laughs> sort of starts jamming along on accordion yeah yeah <laughs> that is great
So the one other small live clip I wanted to play is uh, it's from one of Peter Gritch's uploads. You can find on the um, in the Miscellaneous T Facebook group at the downloads tab here. Um, October eighteenth, nineteen ninety two, at Variety Arts in uh, New York. The intro is hilariously extended. Uh, I thought at first something was like glitching out, but it's like (laughs) totally cool. So we'll check that out. The (laughs) statue got me high. And then it kind of goes back into the intro again and then back into it. Yes. I've heard that a couple of times. Yeah. It's wild. So was that a thing that they were doing there for a minute? I don't remember that. I have heard that, um, but I've never heard that live myself. No. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they would do that. Just. They probably just get bored. They probably, must do these things to relieve the boredom. Yeah. Yeah, just to make themselves laugh. Like, this will be funny. Uh, and it is. Let's get to the cover section here. Because Kara is like, what are you going to be done? And I'm like, it's Daryl, you know. No, it's, it's, it's Statue, really. I mean, Statue is just epic. You've just, you nabbed some good songs, man. I know. Um, should we do your? Well, yours is the oldest cover being wow. from right when the song came out i think we should do that one yeah. first can i do so a disclaimer let's to some do- some dumb kid called astro v <laughs> sure give the disclaimer before yeah, I, play just say, I, I am kind of embarrassed about this but um oh it, stop it, yeah it, it's it's 1992 i'm 16 i've just got very very excited about the statue got me high and i wanted to record a cover and um this was on a four track it was the first four track that i ever owned um a guy that i was starting a band with uh, uh it was his drum machine um and yeah I, I recorded the vocals like in my bedroom in my parents house and it was that time when i was like not quite sure of my singing voice and i was probably singing quietly mm-hmm. so that people didn't hear <laughs> right right the vocals are bad um and i am kind of embarrassed about the whole thing now but yeah i took it out recently i i was uh, going through all my old cassettes, that was one of my lockdown projects, and I found this. Yeah, I can't believe that you still have this. Yeah, I'm it's a, I'm almost a thirty years later. Yeah, no, that's great. I'd, it's great for stuff like this. Up 
I really like your old cover. It's just got that perfect, it's that perfect nostalgia point for me. That 90s, that four, like I've recorded on four tracks too. My first band's first album was recorded on four track. Um, it just sounds like it's that youthful exuberance combined with like that, that sound quality that just takes me back, man. It takes me back to a time when Daryl had hair. <laughs> combined with... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hadn't figured out how to sing on tape yet. Yeah, the, 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 this period of time, I think, when you uh, in, get into recording, where you you've only heard yourself sing in your own head, and you think you've got a great singing voice, and then it's only when you start to commit things to tape that you get this sort of like feedback, your own feedback of like how you actually yeah. sound. Um, so yeah, I think it took me like three or four recordings before i started to get a voice on tape that i was really happy with and this was definitely the first thing that i ever did so um yeah I'm, I'm, but it's part of your learning process and it's documented in a way that you know you can appreciate where you're at now well it's just found its biggest audience um and, uh, <laughs> podcast. yep yep you got over yeah i mean this is a statue got me high episode probably two thousand people just heard that yeah so there it's, you go it's, it's, it's great you know the 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 so it's a is it a Yamaha that is that little synthy sound you do those little counter melodies with between the vocals like replacing kind yeah. of the sax stuff sounds so great. Uh, yeah, it was it was a Yamaha a synth of some kind. I can't remember the model because um, it wasn't mine. But I was I was playing sort of my keyboard on it, and um, and then the rest of the sounds came from like, I think a, a Boss drum machine, and then like a, another little kind of Yamaha sound module. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, re- you were using sequencers. You mentioned Music 2000 oh. on an Amiga 500. No, actually, I think this one, I think the drums were actually programmed on the drum machine. I think this drum machine had like a okay. LCD, LCD display. And I think the, the drums nice. were actually programmed directly onto that. Um, and I think that was recorded first as the bass track. Um, and then the vocals were ping-ponged about <laughs> and mm-hmm. then i think i think yep as you do with a four track kids yeah. don't understand these days no. <laughs> the then, things we everything. had to do <laughs> I, I i don't really remember much about the recording process There's, there is a few tracks on there um but i think i think all the other things were, were played in sort of manually by me rather than programmed mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. yeah it sounds yeah it doesn't doesn't sound like i mean it has that human feel to it it doesn't sound like you know like what will I mean, MIDI is actually a pretty old technology. We we think of it as a new thing, but my 1982 Juno has a MIDI capability. Um, did, but it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like quantized in or something like that. It no. sounds real. It sounds great. I love it. So let's move on to the lesser covers. No, just <laughs> the other people's covers. Um, 
Uh, let's see. We narrowed it down to, because there are a lot. I mean, you could have a whole episode of just covers, as I've done for like you know the live episodes and stuff post live episodes um let's let's do the one and and you found you found these for me i appreciate that no it's been crazy going back to school the horn band uh playing that tv segment and it's from the year 2000 uploaded much later but it's got that you know it's the square uh ratio screen ratio and it just it just looks like it's from the early aughts but it's a band uh, let's see what's the name uh, the blow kings <laughs> <laughs> uh club alto community tv show in december 2000 so it's like some low you know low budget yeah yeah like uh what do you call it public access tv is what we'd call it here i don't know it, i think is it australian because he says he says hello brisbane at the at the beginning so i think it's oh. is it australian let's see bob Kenyon uploaded this if people want to find it let's see is this guy australian Hmm, does not say here. Mind you, he says he says hello Brisbane, which I I don't think is how so, Australians pronounce. He's Brisbane. in Australia, but so not maybe, Australian. <laughs> it's an American band in Australia. I hope Brisbane, Edinburgh. I, I hope you're enjoying this. <laughs> You got me high. The statue got me high. A monumental granite sent a beam into my eye. The statue made me fry. The statue made me fry. I go contained a furnace where there used to be a guy. The stone it called to me, and now I see the things the stone has shown to me. A rock that spoke a word, an animated mineral, it can be heard. And now I once preferred a human being's company. They fell before the monolith that towers over me. The statue got me high, the statue got me high. <laughs> What did you think about that cover? I, I, I liked it. It was kind of, it was a bit manic. The guy's sort of all over the place. He's sort of like walking yeah, around. Yeah, their shoulders and yeah. There's, yeah, I, I don't know what their influences are because the guys in the background look kind of scar influenced with their um, sort of Blues Brothers hats doing the, the big, yeah. big horn section. But the guy at the front, he's he's it's almost kind of like musical in the way that he's sort of like walking around sort of talking to the talking yeah. to the audience and looking at them and pointing it's great it is a very odd combination of things but that's why i love it i mean how many they might be giants covers do i find that have sousaphone on them i mean come on <laughs> plus there's, there's a section in the middle where they're playing past the guy yeah it's wild people got to go watch this one it's definitely one you need to watch uh and then our next one let's see i love the uh, here's another one that takes me back into nostalgic nature. Uh, I called it the young kids playing in front of the river. So we got, uh, let's see, a live trio. The channel is Eli Planador. Uh, Statue got me high. It's an outdoor gig. Three like high school age kids is what it looks like to me. L literally playing just on the grass in front of a river. And people are canoeing by behind them. <laughs> so let's listen to them. One, two, three, four. 
Yeah, El Planador is the El Planador is the name of the band. It's it's Eli Planador is the channel, but El Planador is the name of the band. The Julie Fundwalk. So maybe a charity event of some kind. What do you think of these guys? I, I love this, and when I I thought this would be right up your street because it's got this sort of punk sensibility, and um, and I like the fact that it's a trio. Um, again, harkening back to the fact that the first time I ever heard this song played was a duo performance. And uh, although the song that we know recorded is big and has got saxes and everything, uh, it doesn't need it. And um, I think TMPG should play it in their live show more, especially considering its its importance to fans who had, you know, became fans at Flood. And then this is like the next thing that came along. I I think I'm surprised it doesn't figure more heavily into their, their set, but they probably reserve it for when they've got, at least a trumpeter or, or some kind of horn section. Right. But this, this 173 known performances is pretty low for a song of this stature. It is. And this, uh, but this, this little setup here with the trio, it's great. I mean, you don't, it's a great song <sighs> and it doesn't need uh, the, the trumpets yeah. and the horn section to be great. It, it, Just playing outdoor shows with no stage. Like the drummer back there, you you definitely when they set up, he's like, "All right, where do I put my drum rug? Let's find the least lumpy spot of grass." <laughs> it just takes me back to playing. I I mean, I would just play when we were young. We would just play anywhere. I rem- I, I just saw this, the, you know, they're playing by the river and the kayaks going past. It's just a real freak out. I I have played outside once. Uh, there's a video. Really, just once? Uh, yeah. Remember, this is Britain, clouds and rain, and you know we live under a permanent <laughs> blanket of grey. Um, yeah, it's actually, there's a video on my channel of me playing Birdhouse um, outdoors, and um, mm. it's notable for the fact I'm wearing shades, and they, they slip off my face slowly throughout the performance, and you know I, I, I'm playing piano, so I, I can't push them yep. back up. Can't do it. The, the, yep. weird, the weirdest place of it. The worst thing is when a mic stand starts sagging ah, yeah. in the middle of a song. Like, well, I was building up to the fact the weirdest place I've ever done a gig was uh, the rehabilitation unit of a hospital. Um, and, uh, it was it was really cool, actually. I mean, somebody asked us to do it because um, like a relative of a band member was, you know, working in the hospital. And they said, you know, we're opening this new rehabilitation unit. And they were really appreciative. Mm-hmm. And um, they just opened this new, you know, basketball court with um, like wheelchair basketball, you know, and they... Cool. I had a go. I had a go in a wheelchair and ended up falling over and stuff. It was great. And um, <laughs> but it, it, it was um, it was a strange gig because you know like at half time you know we we didn't think it was going very well and then one of the nurses came up to us and said if you're not getting much claps it's because they can't <laughs> they can't oh. clap you know. And, <laughs> And there were there was people being wheeled in. This is the handless unit. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh no. 
<laughs> going to get cancelled for that one. Uh, well, you, this is this is the thing. No, it's a bit of black humour. You know, you got you got to laugh at the. You're not. It's they're not the target of the joke. It's like the target of the joke is is me and my band that's not getting any any applause. No class. You know, yeah. Just assume it's yeah. Just assume it's because they're too injured to clap. Exactly. <laughs> oh no. But yes, I like that. I like the video. And that's yeah, great. It's great. So then you found a. Uh, a ukulele cover that is sung in Japanese. Oh, yeah. And this is Kentauros Owen uh, on YouTube. Owen, a.k.a. This uh, is super fun. I love hearing stuff translated. I mean, he had to do that himself. I mean, they never sang it in Japanese. It's kind of like us doing Birdhouse in Latin. You know, he had to do his own translation. So I'd be interested to know. You know, I should ask Noah Daniel, who uh, our German friend who is fluent in Japanese. I should ask him what he thinks of this one, how the guy did with his translation. If it, you know, is it musical as far as the, the Japanese goes? What do you think of this? I, I love this. This actually um, appeared, uh, someone posted it to Miscellaneous Tea recently, I think. So it, it was, it came up in the feed when I was searching for statue and I thought, oh, this is great. Um, yeah, I, I love everything about it. I love the fact that he bows uh, when he comes on the stage, um, you know, and yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's really, really slick. Really, really slick. And then he bows again at the end. Yeah. There's quite a few of his it's, ukulele yes, covers adorable. online. Yeah. Cool. I'll have to check some other ones out. That's uh, really well done. Uh, and then we got a chiptune version. Can't go without a chiptune version. And this one you found the best one because there were a couple. Yeah. And there are some other like remixes and stuff like that. that are kind of like, you know, that middle ground of stuff like that. Uh, this is the Lonely World Builder. And I don't know what cartoon or uh, video game character that is on the. Do you know who that is? Next to the song on no, SoundCloud here? No. no. My manga stuff isn't really aimed at me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It might be video <laughs> game. But yeah, SoundCloud.com slash WBuilder. Okay, and then it's the Sash You Got Me High 8-Bit. Let's check it out.
This was just done last year. July 2020. Yeah. Made with the MIDI sequencing software, Sekaju. Something Japanese. Yeah. Cool. Oh, and they do a bunch of original music that sounds like retro video games. That would be cool. Yeah, you hear a lot of chiptune covers, um, but it's rarer to find people writing original music using that uh, technology or emulators. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we talked a little bit about chiptune music on the last podcast we did together. Yeah. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not an expert on it, but I obviously lived through the 80s and and, uh, had a home computer where, you know, all the music was like this. yeah, so what I really, really like is the use of a single channel to emulate multi-channels because a lot of chiptune mm-hmm. covers that are online, they sound kind of retro, but but actually they're just synths that are emulating that retro sound. Yep. Whereas with real mm-hmm. chiptunes, you only had like three channels uh, on some of those early chips. And so programmers had to be really clever to get you know, multi-channel sound out of them. And they do that by sort of, um, you know, mixing the white noise with instruments. So they'd have like a kind of percussion and still some notes or bass notes or whatever, maybe on, as one track. And then they'd have the melody on one. And then the other remaining track, they do like all kinds of weird, you know, fast looping round of, of uh, you know, notes to kind of give the impression of, of a chord being played. That they do that in this right. in this cover a lot, and I, so I don't know if it is a genuine chip tune cover, but it, it certainly it has that feel of one. I, I I really really like it. Well, it says he's using a MIDI sequencer, so it's not. But it, yeah. it's okay. someone who is very well entrenched in old video game music, so they're doing it uh, very authentically to that style. I agree, it's great. So I think it's time to score the song. Okay. Um, I think I gave... is there even a question? Well. <laughs> You know, I I gave the last song a, a ten, and you were like, "No, we don't do tens here." But I, I did say it was like the perfect song. <laughs> I remember saying that. Um, I, I, as as much as I love this song, and as important as it is to me, and it was also, I think, when you gave me the spreadsheet, I think this is the one I picked first because I thought I could say a lot about it. Um, I'm yeah. I'm going to say an eight because although it for me really yeah yeah I'm going to say an eight after all these personal stories and all this and buying it three copies the day the single came out okay Man, okay well I I'll didn't go, see that coming okay I'll go to a nine then I'll go to a nine <laughs> uh, yeah I was trying to be stick to your guns for jelly bones be spine just because I'm, I'm docking a point off for what I consider to be an almost perfect TMBG song I'm docking a point off it just because mm-hmm. um, I think the recorded version of the song. Uh, kind of just slightly misses the mark of being great on account of like the drum production and also the drum yeah, yeah and, mm-hmm. and and also I think the the use of horns in the recorded version is is a little bit over the top and be, perhaps because of it not being a, a real band real drums real bass I feel like they they dominate the recording a little bit um, live versions you know. That they they kind of add a different interpretation to it, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say sure, nine then. Sure, nine. I, would, I, was, Man, I was ducking two points. I, yeah, you're gonna give this. Sure. A, you're gonna go Man, higher. I'm giving this a ten. Okay, this I so rarely go higher than my guess. I I understand your thing against the drum machines, but I really I mean Apollo is my favorite album, yeah. and there are I mean there's a bunch of tens I'd I'd give on this album. I, I'd have to go through and see. Um, because I am stingy about my tens, but I was just—I just put out the Call Your Mom episode, and that one, 
I gave it a 9.9. Love that song. It's one of my favorite songs of this century from them. But Statue's got to be a 10. If Call Your Mom's a 9.9, Statue's got to be a 10. I love the saxes. I love everything about it. It's so catchy. Uh, it's endlessly interpretationable. That's not a word. Well, Interpretable. You proof that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Right? Yeah, exactly. Right? There's just like so many things to talk about. Uh, the the video is amazing. Every, you know everything about it. You know, and it was one of their biggest hits uh, for good reason. Whether they were trying to write Birdhouse too, like you claim, or no, I yeah. mean, I think either way. You, Ramona, you getting cranky? Do you want, here, get up to the mic. Here, what do you want to say? What do you rate this song? Nine. <laughs> what do you come on? What do you give it? What do you think? Is it a nine or a ten? Uh, eh. It's a nine point <laughs> nine. Oh, honey. Oh, there no, we go. It, it is okay, a great yeah, song. And the thing is, the thing is, <laughs> I, I do absolutely love it. And, and I, I'm giving the, the nine t- to the song alone. And I'm kind of ignoring the fact that there is an amazing video and that there's this huge, fantastic memory mm-hmm. that I've got attached to mm-hmm. it, both of it being played at my first ever show and then like, you know, being new material for the first time. Yeah, I, I'm kind of like... Yeah plowing through that and just saying you know how does this if i give it a 10 then i've literally would have nowhere sure. to go for other tmbg songs and there is other songs that i've come to love more than this so yeah I, i'm a, a nine a very solid nine for it just just sure yeah yeah no that's fine yeah that's fine um all right so yeah i don't mean to like shove you off the phone here but plug your stuff super quick because we're about to lose the call okay because of my battery <laughs> it's over baby i mean you're recording yourself so if the call dies you know you could say astro be on soundcloud <laughs> oh okay yeah uh check out my um yeah i'll do that <laughs> and you got a band camp now too right we I, give the addresses there i do yeah. have a band camp uh it is uh it's not astral b um, I never really intended to release music as Astral B. Right. Uh, it's Darren right. Till, D A dot bandcamp.com. Sounds cool when you say it like that. I like that. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks again for being on, man. That was super fun. I knew it would be a fun one. Great song. Uh, great talking to you again. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll be messaging each other about something related or unrelated. Probably, you know, like tomorrow, because we <laughs> there have been quite a message, a lot of messages going back and forth, especially with the Roman covers and the purple toupee thing. It's uh, it's been it's been fun getting to know you through TMBG and all this stuff, man. Something has. Oh, that's a cute baby. Oh, Ramona doesn't like you though. I'm sorry. No, she, she's like, I just want to get off this leg here and go. You know, I don't know. She's just a baby, though, kind of a blob. All right, so <laughs> I think that's the end of the episode. Uh, go subscribe to the show and give us good reviews. I never say that. Review the show. Give star ratings, but only if it's good ratings. <laughs> Bye-bye. What they found was just a statue standing where the statue got me high. And what they'll find is just a statue standing where the statue got you high.